0: This is Baseball Tonight, the podcast.
1: This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Thursday, June 16th, 2022. And today will be better than yesterday. Producing from his home studio, his new home studio in the foothills of Connecticut is Taylor Schwink. Sarah Abbott's going to join us from O'Hare Airport. And I'm Buster Only working from my home in New York. Last night. The Braves carried a 13-game winning streak into their game against the Nationals, and they just continue to roll with a lot of help from Austin
2: Riley. And he smokes one to deep left field, way back it goes, and that is another apple knocked right out of the baseball orchard. Riley has gone deep for the second time in as many at-bats, and it's his 18th home run of the year, the Braves have busted it open.
1: Riley scores. It's 8-2. That from 680, the fan. And here was the final call, which have to be getting fun.
2: And the 2-1. Fly ball to right. Ronald Acuna coming in. Ronald is under it. And the Braves have won 14 games in a row.
1: And their longest winning streak since 2013. My son Jake, the crazy Braves fan, now at the end of these games just sends me a number. Like, two two nights ago, he sent 13. Last night, he sent 14. Yankees raised, and Aaron Judge gave the Yankees a lead. The
3: 3-2. Driven out to right center field. go back on the track at the wall. See ya!
2: Home run, Aaron Judge. He's 25th, and it's a 1-0 Yankee lead.
1: And in the fifth inning, Kyle Agashioka, who's been heating up, got a big hit.
2: Fifth. High five ball. Deep left field. Fair ball,
3: it's gone. It is gone! See ya! A three-run home run for Kyle Higashioka. They wanted to pitch to him,
2: and he made him pay. 4 nothing Yanks.
1: Michael Kay on the Yes Network with those calls. After their 4-3 victory, the Yankees, 30 games over 500 with a record of 46 46- And 16. The Blue Jays played the Orioles last night. The Orioles had a big inning in the 8th to tie the score, but this is what happened in the bottom of the 10th.
3: The 1-0. Swing and a line drive. Base hit into left field. The Blue Jays are going to win it. The shit racing to the plate. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. delivers.
1: That from Sportsnet 590, the fan. The Department of Justice, making a request on behalf of three former minor league teams suing Major League Baseball after the league stripped them of their affiliation, asked a federal court Wednesday to limit the antitrust exemption given to Major League Baseball. The three teams suing MLB were among the 43 that lost their affiliation when the league downsized the minors to 120 teams in 2020. The ones who get it done is brought to you by Granger. For the ones who get it done... Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, backed by 24/7 support and access to product specialists. Call, click granger.com or stop by. You know who's getting it done for the Astros? How about a couple of pitchers?
2: Miller Owen 2 who loses a piece of the bat on that foul ball. An immaculate nice. inning. 9 pitch, 3 strikeout. Rarely happens in baseball. Luis Garcia An immaculate inning and a fist pump on his way to the dugout. And a big smile from Luis. (laughs) Maton's pitch. Got him upstairs. Strike three. Double your pleasure. Immaculate for everybody. Luis Garcia did it in the second. And Maton does it in the seventh to Lowe, Duran, and Miller, the same three hitters.
1: Yeah, with Steve Sparks. uh, Sparksy, KBME, 790 AM. We're going to be talking about that coming up. I'm not... I'm sure, quite what to make of it. Two immaculate innings. The incredible thing was is that Luis Garcia uh, Mayton, uh retired the exact same three hitters in, in generating the immaculate inning. Nine pitches, three strikeouts. The Twins and the Mariners. The reason why I included this is before the game, each row was asked the question: who's his favorite left-handed hitter in Major League Baseball right now? Well, here's the answer.
2: It has been a long top of the eighth for Penn. Here's the stretch. And now the 3-2 pitch on the way to a right swing and a ground ball through the left side of the infield. Correa will score. Sanchez, the third. He's going to be waved in and he's going to score up of the ball is Julio Rodriguez out there. The throw will go into second base. A rise with a
1: single, two runs batted in. Lewis Rise hitting 354 with a 438 on base percentage. That's out from the Treasure Island Baseball Network. What a game for the Phillies yesterday. They were facing the Marlins. They trailed by a run, and then this happened. And it swung on and crushed deep right field, and that one is gone. Garrett Stubbs wins it. you got to be kidding me. A three-run home run by Garrett Stubbs, and the
2: ball game ends. The Phillies down to their final strike. And Stubbs arrives at home plate as the Phillies with a three-to-one victory over the Marlins.
1: Big win for the Phillies. Scott Fransky, Sports Radio 94 WIP. Since the last podcast, the Dodgers revealed that Walker Buehler underwent arthroscopic surgery to remove a bone spur from his troublesome right elbow. We're going to be talking about that with Alden Gonzalez coming up in just a bit. The Dodgers last night were facing the Angels and Tyler Anderson carried a no hitter into the ninth inning. And then this happened.
2: The pitch he swings at that one and drills one in the right, and that's going to drop in out of the reach of bets. Otani's going to get two, he's going to go for third. He's going to get there. Otani has just broken up the
3: no hit bid with one out here in the ninth inning.
1: What a great year for Tyler Anderson this season! Uh, no hitter into the ninth inning. The Dodgers
3: win that game, Taylor. What else you got? Buster, tonight is Game 6 of the NBA Finals. And you can listen to The Hoop Collective with Brian Windhorse. He is joined by ESPN's Tim McMahon and Tim Bontemps to preview that Game 6. And they're talking about how Steph Curry will bounce back, why Ime Udoka says Boston likes doing things the hard way, and the key to the series that continues to pop up, plus Colden State, how they're making smart de- decisions and they continue to set the team up for success. That is The Hoop Collective ahead of Game 6. Listen to that wherever you get your podcasts.
1: That's code BASEBALL. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. We're driven by the search for better. When it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. according to a recent Indeed survey. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com buster. Just go to indeed.com buster right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Buster. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Alan Gonzalez covers baseball for ESPN. And Alan, how are you doing today?
4: I'm doing great, Buster. A little a little weary. Uh, last night was very eventful. We almost got a no-hitter from Tyler Anderson. So that was a lot of fun at, uh, at Dodger Stadium the night before.
1: All right. And before we get to that, I want to ask you about what happened in the Astros game last night, two immaculate innings uh, by two different pitchers. The first time on the same team, the first time in baseball history, that's happened. And Oh, by the way, they retired the same three hitters uh, in the sequence that they had. <laughs> I, I need you to check me on this one. Cause I got to say, like when I saw it on social media, I kind of had a bit of a shrug of the shoulder it uh, really shoulders. It, it remind me a, a lot of what our old friend Book Shambi, you know, how he feels about this, the hitting for the cycle. Like he kind of looks at it like, nah, it's more of a statistical curiosity than a major feat. Am I wrong? Because I, I was like, man, this era of so many strikeouts, like striking out the side with nine pitches doesn't seem so unusual anymore.
4: Well, I think Martin Maldonado would tell you that you're not wrong because I think he threw the ball into Alex Bregman just as if it were a normal strikeout to end an inning, and then he got back to the dugout and everybody kept telling him, get the ball, get the ball, this is a really big deal. Um, When I saw it, I was pretty impressed because, I I mean, this is more rare than a no-hitter, a perfect game, hitting for the cycle, anything like that. I could see it, it is definitely an anomaly, don't get me wrong, but... Immaculate innings in one game. I don't think there's ever been two immaculate innings on the same day um, or in the same game. Granted, and so definitely not by the same team. Uh, It's kind of a statistical anomaly, but I think this is like, this is as rare as like seeing a comet, though, coming by. I mean, just sort of based on baseball history.
1: Okay. Well, we've got the Astros and the White Sox this weekend and Sunday Night Baseball, so I'm going to talk to those guys find out, uh, you know, did they take a baseball away from it? Did they collect something from it? How big big of a deal it is to them uh, before I think I render my final judgment. uh, (laughs) I'll do that over the weekend. All right. So last night, Tyler Anderson comes close to throwing a no-hitter for the Dodgers. He's one of the best stories in baseball, I feel like, this year. You're getting this mid-career emergence.
4: Yeah, no doubt. I mean, and look at where would the Dodgers be without Tony Gonsolin and Tyler Anderson? Imagine saying that at the start of the year. But those two guys carried this rotation. This is a rotation that came in with a lot of question marks. Then, I'll, then you have Clayton Kershaw going on the engine list. You have Julio Arias not looking quite as dominant as he looked last year. And now, obviously, you have the news of Walker Buehler, who's going to be out until September at least. Tyler Anderson yesterday, I mean, he went back to an old changeup grip that throws the ball a little slower that ended up being his best pitch um and it's amazing Buster. i mean one of the big talking points last night was dave roberts who famously removed rich hill and clayton kershaw from perfect games when they were only in the 80 pitch range letting tyler anderson go over 120 pitches given how important he is he said something really funny after after the game. He said, look, I know I have this reputation as the Grim Reaper, but I'm a sports fan too. He wanted to see Tyler Anderson get it, but he left the cutter up to Shohei Otani, and he doesn't miss those pitches. So he had to give up uh, his first hit with one out in the ninth inning.
0: Yeah,
1: I always feel like that the context is important with each of those decisions. And, and if you're Dave Roberts, yeah. you get Tyler Anderson who's been – You know, a guy who's bounced around in his career. And as we talked about, he he sort of has blossomed now uh, in his time with the Dodgers and given his salary and given his service time and where he is in his career, I I think he made the absolute right decision to give him the chance to finish it.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of the viewers were very nervous, though, because between innings, they kept showing pictures of, they kept showing snapshots of Tyler Anderson in the dugout. He kept just sort of massaging the area of his left arm his bicep, his elbow, his form, and everybody's like, what's going on here? Is he pitching through soreness? Um, and he said, no, this is just, he said after the game, this is just what a guy who's been through a lot of injuries and is very hypersensitive to his body tends to do um, in between innings. He felt great. He wanted it. And if you saw that Dodger Stadium crowd, I mean, when he came out for the ninth inning, just sort of the pop of that stadium, there was 50,000 people there even last night. Um, that, that was fun. He said it was like a playoff atmosphere.
1: You mentioned Walker Buehler uh, and the question of whether or not he's going to come back this year. What do you think?
4: I think he can. I just um, I don't know that there's much margin for error. I mean, he talked about how he went in there on Monday and just decided to remove a bone spur that's been there for a while. And the reason for that is because it's a 10 to 12 week, week recovery. That's the same recovery as his flexor stream. So what we know is it's at the very least he's going to go six weeks without picking up a baseball. All right. That's troubling enough. Um, it could be eight weeks. They're going to have an MRI at that point, and then they'll decide determine whether he can start throwing. But when he starts ramping up, it's spring training again, basically, for him. He's got to build back up traditionally. He's got to go out on a rehab assignment or if the minor league season's over by then, um, navigate through sim games and build up accordingly. Um, the timeline has him back around late August, early September. But that's without any hiccups. And, you know, Walker Peeler said it himself. He's had elbow issues before he's a really smart guy he's very aware of his body and how his arm works he said he feels like he can come back this year but you know at this point in june there's no certainty so you look at the dodgers they're obviously trying to contend for a world series championship they can't take that for granted they got to go out and they got to get some starting pitching before the trade deadline
1: that's what i was going to ask you is that the absolute priority before the deadline in a market which looks like it's going to be relatively thin in starting pitching it's gonna,
4: I would expect it to be very thin, just especially because of the extra wild cards. But yes, that is their priority. Keep in mind, they didn't just lose Walker Buehler, who's the most important starting pitcher on their team, but they lost Blake Trident for a long time. And he's the most important relief pitcher on their team. So it's going to be starting pitching, but it's also going to be relief pitching. Craig Kimbrell has been fine. He hasn't been great as their closer. So they need some help in the back end of their bullpen. But I think more importantly, yes, they're going to need starting pitching. Tony Gonson's been great, like I said. Tyler Anderson's been great. And Andrew Heaney's coming back. So they're fine for now, but that's what they have. They don't have much organizational depth coming up. And I expect them to be bidders for the top arms on the market in many ways like they were last year for Mike Scherzer.
1: So we saw it in recent days as San Diego Padres, uh, you know, merging in the standings uh, in a virtual tie with the Dodgers. It feels like the Dodgers are more vulnerable than they have been in a few years in terms of regular
4: season. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I would add that their lineup hasn't fully clicked yet, and it will, but just sort of the fact that they don't have that plethora of pitching depth does make them vulnerable, and on the other side of that, what the the Padres have in abundance is starting pitching depth. I mean, they're rostering, I think it's eight guys right now that are legitimate starting pitchers, and they're just trying to be creative and finding ways to get them innings. The fact that the Padres have done this without – Fernando Tatis Jr. is amazing. They got to 40 wins before the Dodgers did. And I don't think anybody saw that coming. That's been in large part to Manny Machado, but it's been because of their pitching. And, you know, talking about what the Dodgers are going to do in the trade deadline, I'd be fascinated if their starting pitchers remain healthy to see what A.J. Prenner does with his starting pitching depth at the trade deadline. Because while the Dodgers need starting pitching, The Padres need offense. They need a little bit more there, even with Tatis healthy. And you know that A.J. Peller's not going to sit idly by.
1: Before you go, uh, give me an update on what you hear about Fernando Tatis Jr. Uh, And you mentioned Manny Machado last night, career hit number 1,500. I've been impressed with his evolution as a player. What about you?
4: Yeah, and if you talk to people around him – They'll be, they're impressed not just by his evolution as a player, but I think just he's going to turn 30 now and just sort of his evolution as a leader, as um, just somebody who's a little bit more mature um, and in tune with his game. I mean, you remember all the flack that Manny Machado used to get early on in his career. You know, what Padres players and coaches, past and current, say about him, the people who spend a lot of time around him say that this guy works harder than anybody. This guy posts all the time, he plays all the time. And, you know, I remember talking to Bob Melvin about him in spring training. He had just met him. And Bob Melvin told me that uh, this is something that Bob Melvin volunteered that from the outside when he was with Oakland, you know, he wasn't Manny Machado's biggest fan all the time because he saw sometimes how he came out of the box and just sort of some of that narrative. And being around him, he understood just sort of why he does certain things because he needs to play every single day and he plays more than anybody else. And he has just such a much bigger respect for his game defensively offensively it's just sort of how smart he is how instinctual he is as a baseball player and he's continuing to show that he's carried this Padres team as for Tatis they had a CT scan his wrist I think they're being very conservative with this but he's not ready to hit yet and that's the big deal. that's the biggest deal i mean he's doing basically everything else but he can't grab a bat and start swinging it and with that wrist injury that's sort of the thing that you worry about the most it sounds like they're going to be certain that he is fully, fully healed before he can pick up a bat and take batting practice. But they're not yet there yet, and you know, just like we talked about with Bueller, to a lesser extent, Tatis needs to build back up as a hitter, and that's that's going to take some time.
1: Yeah, weeks and weeks. Uh, early in the season, I remember when there was talk about how uh, Tatis Jr. might come back in early June, and Bob Melvin told us before game, "No, it's going to be longer than that." Then that's yeah. uh, that's absolutely how it's played out. All right, Alan, great to talk with you. Uh, I will see you soon. Thank you, Buster. Randy Wilkins is the director of the seven-part docu series "The Captain," uh, and that will debut on ESPN and ESPN Plus on Monday, July 18th at 10 p.m. Eastern, immediately after the Major League Baseball All-Star Home Run Derby. I can't wait to see it, Randy. Uh, I know you had uh, your first showing the other day. How much fun was that for you?
0: Oh, it was amazing. It was surreal. Um, it's been about a year and a half of hard work and, uh, a lot of, a lot of research, a lot of interviews. We did up to 90 interviews and to finally see it culminated, uh, at Tribeca on Sunday was, was fantastic. It was amazing.
1: Okay. Tell me, and I'm, I'm assuming Derek saw this before you had the showing the other day, yeah. uh, or maybe I'm wrong. Tell me what, uh, what was the first reaction from
0: him? Well, he had seen, uh, cuts throughout the process. Um, So he, he was aware of what was in it. Um, It was collaborative. I know some people like to think that he had like all kind of creative control. It was collaborative. So um, we worked on it together and uh, had freedom to tell the story the way I wanted to, but uh, he was proud. And I think the most important thing to him was making sure that uh, the audience enjoyed it and that they learned something about him. Um, Both Yankees fans and non-Yankees fans. uh, We made it uh, a point to make sure that, even though um, someone might not be a Derek Jeter fan or a Yankees fan, that they were able to engage with this and feel like they learned something and that this is something that they wanted to watch. Um, so he was proud and just wanted to make sure that that the people enjoyed it. What was the
1: coolest reaction you got after the first showing from uh, folks in the audience? Some, something that
0: somebody said to you, that, that somebody that you bumped into afterward? I, I don't, I'm not sure if it's something that somebody said, but people asking me to take selfies with them was a little surreal. That's never really <laughs> happened to me before. Uh, and I heard my name being called out way more than I have in the past. Uh, so that part of it was probably more surreal than anything anybody said. The uh, The audience reaction during the screening was great. It's exactly what we wanted it to be. The applause at the end was very humbling and gratifying. Uh, but I think taking selfies with strangers on the red court carpet uh, probably stood out the most. <laughs>
1: Uh, I, I watched the Jordan documentary, uh, and I must say, as it went along, I was wincing a little bit because I felt it was too sanitized, you know, and, and I didn't cover Jordan, but just based on stories that I heard around the edge and sort of the culture. Uh, and, and when I heard about this, I was wondering how much this was going to be sanitized. So I, I'm curious, from your perspective, as you began this, uh,
0: what was your aim? Uh, my aim was to give a balanced story about Je- Derek's career and his life. Um, I didn't want to shy away from moments where there would be criticism involved. Um, I didn't want this to feel like a Yankeeography. No disrespect to the classic Yankeeographies, but I wanted to give an honest depiction of Derek's career and his life. And that includes some criticism. um, And we include that. Uh, So I wanted to make sure that people didn't feel like it was a puff piece or a love letter from a Yankee fan to Derek Jeter. Um, I think there are moments where um, valid criticism exists and I think we did our best to explore that. We didn't run away from it. We, we kind of jumped into it. There were moments where you bust you're a part of the film where you're critical of Derek and we include that. Um, and I think that that's important to make sure that um, we have perspectives that range across the spectrum. So uh, we tried our best to make sure that it, it didn't feel sanitized, that, um people didn't feel like it was just heavy-handed on one side um so yeah we one of our aims was to make sure that people didn't feel like it was just um like a love letter to Derek I, I've known even as a Yankees fan admitted Yankees fan I had no interest in doing that I'm a storyteller first uh, I'm a filmmaker first and it's my responsibility to give as many perspectives and allow people to tell stories from from the way that they see things, that's my responsibility. And I, I take that very seriously. So that was one of our aims.
1: And Randy, that was my takeaway from the interview that you did with me. Like I went, back, walked away and I was talking with friends. I'm like, you know what, this this is could be spectacular because you were looking for nuance. You were looking for a portrayal of a human being.
4: <laughs> Absolutely. You know,
1: where you have an evolution through life. Cause I, you know, when you and I sat and you were encouraging me, along those lines, uh, which I, I thought was great. And then I heard other people, you know, I worked uh, with Alex Rodriguez on Sunday night baseball for years. And that's the feedback I got from him. Uh, Your conversations, Derek conversations, from what I understand, Brian Cashman, the same thing. So Mm -hmm. you were looking for the full picture.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's, again, that's my responsibility as a filmmaker to tell the story honestly and give everyone a chance to speak their truth. Um, I came up under Spike Lee. So, and I worked on a lot of his documentaries and that was the number one rule that you let people tell the stories the way that they see it and you just put it together. Um, and you try to be as objective as possible. Obviously you can't be a hundred percent objective cause you're editing. Um, but yeah, with, with Alex, with Brian Cashman, Hal Steinbrenner, Joel Sherman, yourself, it goes down the line. People see things the way that they see it. And I think that it gives a full, um, full picture of who Derek Jeter is, both the player and the person. Um, Obviously we give them chances to respond, but the fact that people's various opinions are littered throughout gives us a chance to have great conversations that people can arrive at their own conclusions. So for me, I want to present the information and let the audience arrive at their own conclusions. I don't want to steer somebody, um, uh, towards a particular point or conclusion. So, um, it was important to have your perspective and others to, to balance things out. And
1: you absolutely did that. The questions you asked me were open-ended, like give us your perspective. It was not, you know, a question, you're designed to steer me in one way, uh, which I, as they say, I, I told a lot of friends about it. So I'm excited to, to see this. Uh, what was your, a favorite interview that you got to do, uh, that uh, you just enjoyed the the back and forth with the, with the person you were talking with.
0: Michael Jordan. Uh, He was our very last interview Um, pulling the curtain back a little bit. We just filmed it maybe a week and a half ago now. And uh, he was the only interview where I was asking questions and he was answering. And I like was kind of starstruck in the moment. Um, And he the thing about his interview is that obviously he has great presence, but he validates a lot of things that other people were saying throughout the project, and it was unique because he's one of the few athletes in the world that can actually understand what Derek went through and experienced. Um, so when he said it, it just felt like it was not gospel, but it, it just was. It just had a stronger resonance because it was. It's been his experience as well. And he knows what it means. He understands the criticism that comes along with being such a high profile athlete, but he also understands the demands and the sacrifices that go uh, into becoming that, that level of athlete. So um, I would say Michael Jordan, I would say Reggie Jackson. I learned a lot from Reggie Jackson. Um, there were just so many nuggets that he dropped throughout our interview that um, just as a as a person, as a black man, like I felt like I learned something. And I walked away a better person. Uh, Brian Cashman. Um, I really enjoyed that interview. I enjoyed the interview with you. I enjoyed the interview with Joel Sherman. Um, I thought Joel Sherman's interview is fantastic. Um, there, there's a, there are a lot of people, but those uh, stood out to me immediately.
1: What was something that you uh, you learned about Derek that surprised you as you were going through this?
0: His edge.
1: i'm laughing because i know exactly what you're talking about
0: (laughs) he is way more intense than i thought uh you see the smile you see the the conversations with players at second base um you know good energy on the field happy to be playing but there is a very intense um focus and discipline and competitive nature that I don't think you would know existed unless you actually met him. And, um, that intensity like really stood out, um, immediately. And I I have a much better understanding of what makes him great. Um, just that laser focus, you hear people say it, but like to actually see it, um, and to be around it, uh, is a totally different experience. So I think the edge, uh, is what really stood out.
1: Yeah. The, uh, the edge, the confidence level, I always would laugh, uh, at the sort of the public discourse, uh, about Derek, about how he was quote unquote overrated. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, cause I got a chance to watch it for four years when I was at the New York times every day. And I got to have a chance to, you know, have conversations with people like Theo Epstein who, they love Derek. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the Red Sox folks love Derek. They they thought he was underrated mm-hmm. because of what he brought to the table in every game and especially in high pressure moments. Uh, I'm curious about some of the feedback you got there.
0: Yeah, uh, I mean it was across the board. Uh, you know, there's always just going to be that that um, perception of Derek. But yeah, we spoke to Theo Epstein as well, and he was effusive in his praise of Derek, even as a Fierce competitor and a rival. Um, yeah, I, I mean, we spoke to Nomar, who had nothing but amazing things to say about him. We spoke with Jimmy Rollins. I really was interested to hear from fellow shortstops because they play the position. They understand the demands of it. They understand what's required of the position. And they were all effusive in their praise. And, and I think we're offended that people think of Derek in that way. And they're just like, uh, the, the major a uh, theme coming out of it was that a lot of people just don't understand the position and what's required and that there's so many little things that happen in the details that go into it to be a successful shortstop in the major leagues. A lot of people just don't understand. And they said that Derek checked all the boxes. Um, so yeah, I, I was more interested in, in other shortstops talking about a um really complimentary of Derek and how he played shortstop. Um, so yeah, I, Brian Cashman also Brian Cashman was also honest about the the period of time when Derek aged a little bit and he started to slip on a defensive end but then even mentioned that <clears throat> Derek was determined to improve and, and didn't like that nobody had told him that he needed to improve his defense um so yeah I mean I I never thought he was overrated I'm not sure how you can be a hall of famer and um win as many championships and be overrated when you're kind of at the heart of a dynasty. But it was nice to hear other people say that he was a great shortstop.
1: I read somewhere that you uh, said that, uh, that one of the the tougher topics for you to, to get Derek to talk about was his relationship with Alex. Mm-hmm. Can you give some context to that?
0: Yeah, I, I think Derek was open to talk about it. So it's not like he didn't want to talk about it, but I think that for him – In a lot of ways he felt that there were stories created out of it just to create a distraction and i think that he was trying to toe the line of making sure that he didn't feed into that in the film um he he felt and i believe him when he said that you know i i looked i dealt with it i turned it off and i went about my business of playing baseball and i think that he was just conscious of not uh going back to the times when he was playing that people would create stories So I think he was trying to toe a line that making sure that he was honest about it. He was upfront about, uh, their time together, but didn't want others to kind of jump in and make it a a bigger story. Kind of like, uh, how it was when he was playing. So I think, um, I think he was just conscious of that, but he, I mean, he was open about it. He was honest about it. He gave his own perspective on how things went down and how he felt about it. Um, so, and Alex was as well. So, I think it led to, a, to great conversations. Um, I think it led to great scenes in the film. Um, but I think he was just conscious of how the outside world would kind of take a story and and make it bigger than how he perceives it to be.
1: That's what I, uh, as, uh, when I read that that this had been the issue, uh, you know, Derek and, and, and some reluctance to talk about Alex, that's what I I thought might be the case because uh, as I talked my conversation with you uh, last summer, was about how Derek in his time as a player reflexively tried to steer around potential controversies. And so that your challenge was because he knows that everyone is going to be asking, okay, what about the relationship with Alex? Because for whatever, you know, stories were told about it that were wrong, the bottom line is they used to be really close and now they're not anymore.
0: Right. Yeah. And and both Derek and Alex were very honest about that. Um, and I think that the way that the story or this storyline progresses in the film has a nice payoff that I think people will be hopeful about. Um, but yeah, I mean, that really just came down to, again, Derek being aware of how the media world works and, you know, what people would like to sink their teeth into depending on like what kind of angle they're looking for. So, um, in no way was I saying that Derek, uh, Derek wasn't open about it cause he was, um, probably more than I thought he was going to be. Um, but I think it was, again, what you mentioned is just that reflexive nature of, I know people like to make stories when they can and just being cautious of, about that.
1: So I've heard stories about Derek in the last two years uh, from talking to other folks in, in, uh, in baseball, where my sense is, is that Derek uh, is, is evolving as a person as he gets further away from his career that you know the experience with the Marlins for him was something that he really learned from. You've talked to him in a way that I haven't, and I'm curious about your perspective on that.
0: Oh yeah. I, I think that the Marlins uh era in his life really changed a lot of things, especially from uh player management perspective. I mean he's on the you know he was literally on the other side of of the coin. So I think I think he I think he just expanded um, his perspective on a lot of things and what's required of management and ownership and how you have to um, satisfy what the franchise's needs are, but also still be mindful of what the players needs are. And I think that um, over the four years that he was in Miami or with Miami, he started to understand what that requires and how difficult it can be on both sides. And I think that, Um, Yeah, he's grown from it. But I also think it's important. And this is in the film. I don't want to give it away, so I won't give all the details to ruin it for people. But there were a lot of personal things that happened while Derek was uh, CEO of the Marlins that I think the two experiences merged together to lead to that growth. Um, There were just uh, moments with his family and with others that I think also influenced how he looked at his relationships with people, um, how he engaged with people. Uh, who he trusted, who he didn't trust. And I think that those two things combined led to that evolution of Derek post career. So I don't think it was just his time in Miami. I also think that there were just moments with people that he cares about that also influenced the way that he looked at the world and um, how he perceived his relationships with a lot of people.
1: Give me a prediction before you go on what's next for Derek.
0: Oh, wow he's getting into some business ventures um but I I think he's going to try to become a part of another ownership group moving forward I I don't think that that is I don't think that it's has been totally scratched and I think that he still has a vision of how a baseball operation can be run um I think that he will and this is just my opinion I have not spoken to him about it um I think that he will look for a situation where he can be majority control owner. Um, and I think that he will pursue it again if the right opportunity comes up. That's just my prediction. I don't think he's done with his dream of uh, owning a major league franchise.
1: Based on what I've heard from other folks, I think you're hundred percent right. Yeah. It'll uh, be interesting <laughs> to see, see what develops there. All right, Randy, uh, congratulations on finishing the project. I can't wait to, can't wait to see this year. I feel like you did a great job of these interviews.
0: Thank you, I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here with you.
1: You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, the clutch hits, the strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems, with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV that means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season root 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 with nothing on your roof call one 800 directv or visit directtv.com sign up today claim based on total games carried on sports networks sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package dogs are an important part of our lives and keeping them protected is a top priority especially against nasty parasites. That's why you gotta check out NextGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxydectin, and Pyrantel chewable tablets. NextGuard Plus chews provide one and done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease. Plus, it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NextGuard Plus Chews. They're the one and done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Use with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting preventive. Radum is the chief executive of our weekly quiz he's a graphic artist whose work can be seen on ball fields all across America all around the world or you can go to his website ToddRadom.com. Todd how you doing this week? I'm doing all right. Buster, how are you sir? I'm doing well. I feel good about the quiz. This is I think to this
2: point this is my best showing in the quiz. Would you agree with me? Well, you see what you just did to yourself. You like uh, come on now. You played yourself. <laughs> Well, and my it could be the beginning of a precipitous decline, my friend. Yeah, Yeah. and two weeks ago,
1: I declared the National League East race over on radio in Alabama, which means I can't show my face below the Mason Dixon line anytime soon. (laughs) So uh, maybe that you're right. It was probably a statement made too early. Yeah. What are you doing that for? What's What's the What good will come of that? (laughs) All right. Before we get to my weekly victory in the quiz, I'm just going to double down on the jinx here. Uh, a quick question for you. I was thinking about this when I was at Fenway Park a couple of weeks ago uh, and sitting there watching a ball game. You know, there, we, you and I have favorite ballparks we like to go to because of, you know, various factors. A lot of, for me, it's about utility. It's about working environment. You know, how quickly can you go from the press box to the clubhouse? Stupid things like that. Uh, you, as an artist, might have different views What's your favorite ballpark to sit and watch a ball game in? Just if you have one ballpark, one night anywhere in the world, what ballpark would you go to to watch a ball game in?
2: Wow, and and there's only one answer to this, Buster. Well, well I'm, I'm going to yes, say for this question, yeah I'm, yeah, I'm putting you on the spot. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to default to Fenway because I'm a Red Sox fan, because of the history, because I've been going there since 1978. I look around, I see ghosts in a way that as beautiful as Pittsburgh is, you don't see ghosts, right? Or San Francisco, because there's no personal connection. As spectacular as that is. um, I think that the utility factor that you reference is a thing if you're a fan. You want to be able to uh, spread out a little bit and have a convenient trip to go get a, a, a frosty beverage or that kind of a thing. But like I said, I always come back to Fenway because of Everything that has happened there, both personally and throughout the history of the game. And I love the fact that you can walk from your hotel to the ball game, which you can't do just everywhere. Um, and you and I have had discussions about utility. And I know that you and many of your fellow writers love Tropicana Field in Tampa or St. Pete. That's exactly right. Because it's first off, you
1: know, in Florida in the summertime, in the late afternoon, the evening, that the games are going to be played, despite the thunderstorms that roll in that time of day every day. Uh, and it's, it is very quick there from the press box down to the clubhouse, which is a big
2: deal, you know? It, I'm, ga- I'm going to, a month from now, give or take, you and I will both be at the All-Star Game in Los Angeles, talk about a spectacular setting to sit there and look out there. Vince Scully, the uh, the candy cotton candy clouds, right, beyond the San Gabriel Mountains, the palms, the whole thing. I would say, you know, that's, like, got to be at the top of the the food chain when we're having this discussion. And you just mentioned this. I mean, we'll be out of there at a reasonable hour, so.
1: Yeah, that'll be great. Although, it's funny. I thought when you started that conversation, when you talked about utility, I was like, oh, my God, LAX. <laughs> <laughs> well... And someone the, who is dealing you with a getting uh, out of the ballpark is not easy.
2: <laughs> yeah. Before before we uh jumped on, we were talking about I am having some flight difficulties trying to get out of here this morning. So you've just uh, reminded me of that. And at least going from New York to LAX, there's really never any delays. Like it just gets up there and it goes across the country. So, you know, yeah, you got the airport, but uh, it's not much better here in New York either, as you and I both know. Exactly. All right, let's get to this week's Phantom Franchise. All right, Buster. On October 3rd, 1997, Minnesota Twins owner Carl Polad signed a letter of intent to sell the team to a group of North Carolina investors led by minor league team owner Don Beaver. Polad was frustrated in his efforts to get the state of Minnesota to pony up financing for a new ballpark that would have replaced the then 15-year-old Metrodome. The team was to have played the 1999 and 2000 seasons at the home of the AAA Charlotte Knights in Fort Mill, South Carolina, which was to have been expanded from 10,000 to 33,000 seats. Their permanent home would have been either Greensboro or Charlotte, which is still considered a prime area for a potential MLB franchise a quarter century later. That November, the Minnesota legislature defeated a proposal to finance a new stadium. Carl Polat has tried everything to stay in Minnesota, said Acting Commissioner Bud Selig. MLB formed a committee, which they often do, to help the Twins navigate the relocation process. Twins team president Jerry Bell visited North Carolina in mid-December and signaled his satisfaction with the area, saying that the deal was in its final stages. The Twins played their final exhibition game of the 1998 spring training season in Winston-Salem, where they were met by 8,500 fans, which included a small group of protesters who were opposed to spending taxpayer dollars to lure the club south. Greensboro-area voters soon turned down a proposal to fund a new stadium, and the deal to move the club stagnated, with Pollard seemingly getting cold feet. Finally, Buster, in mid-August 1998, the whole plan collapsed. The twins signed a two-year lease to stay on at the Metrodome, but legislative efforts toward a new stadium continued to fail, even as the team was designated for contraction by baseball in November 2001. This also fell through. And finally, in 2006, a proposal to fund a new ballpark in downtown Minneapolis was approved by Minnesota legislators. The stadium is now Target Field, the home of the Minnesota Twins, as opposed to the North Carolina Twins, who are this week's phantom Franchise.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Todd, I remember all of those details uh, that you're talking about, you know, the twists and the turns. And that, to me, may have been the the prime example that I've seen in baseball of a leverage play or attempted leverage play, an attempted bluff, where it was like, we're not kidding. We're not kidding. And especially when they were designated for contraction, which, as you remember, was right in the middle of their labor fight going into the 2002 CBA and that was their way to to you know rattle the cage of the of the players association saying look we're going to lose jobs i i remember listening seeing reading those stories and and talking to people and believing none of it what about you
2: <laughs> yeah i agree with that and it seemed like such a perplexing thing and again uh state of play back then Camden Yards which set the standard as you and i have often talked about was still relatively young All of these newer stadiums were still in the process of coming online. Uh, You know, Miller Park in Milwaukee, still a couple of years away at that point, if I'm not mistaken, Seattle about to open. So you kind of figured like, okay, you know, it's Minneapolis. They're not going to, it's going to, it's going to happen at some point. And you talk about great ballparks to sit and look out and watch a game. Target Field would be at the top of that list. Such a beautiful ballpark great downtown, all that. But yeah, I don't think that was ever going to happen. And I'm picturing the twins playing at an expanded 33,000 seat stadium in Fort Mill, South Carolina. No. <laughs> I, I always love when you fly into the Minneapolis
1: airport, uh, how you look out uh, at the the recreation field, the recreational fields in that area. And Todd, they're pristine. Like, unlike any other place in the country, like, these are so well kept. And I remember flying into Minneapolis going, yeah, they're not going to lose their baseball team. No. <laughs> Folks here no. care too much about, uh, about <laughs> sports and about baseball to, to let that happen. You, uh, you, you've seen those, right, when you fly into Minneapolis? Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I love that airport, and uh, boy, we're talking a lot about airports this morning. But yes, love the light rail to downtown, which you know puts you a couple of blocks from the ballpark. Uh, very immaculately clean. Yes, absolutely. Get me to Minneapolis, even though that's not where I'm wanting to go today, but uh, another time. Okay, let's get to this week's quiz. All right, everybody, are we ready for this? Here we go. This season, Taylor's Baltimore Orioles are celebrating the 30th anniversary of the aforementioned Camden Yards with a commemorative sleeve patch. So we've got another sleeve patch question this week. Which one of these current ballparks has never been similarly commemorated with a sleeve patch on their team's uniform? Is it Citi Field in New York, PNC Park in Pittsburgh, Citizens Bank Park in Philadelphia, or Target Field in Minneapolis? Has never been commemorated with a uniform patch. Citi Field, PNC Park, Citizens Bank Park, or Target Field.
1: Sarah, you have made the effort to join the quiz this week from the O'Hare Airport, another uh, airport conversation. So I'm going to let you go first today.
0: Oh,
2: my gosh. Yes, um, the lovely sounds of the airport behind me. I might phone a
4: friend on this one. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I'm going to go. One in four chance. One in four chance. See. I'm going to go see.
3: Citizens I think I behind me nodded his head, so I think I think it's C. I think it's C. Okay, Taylor, I'm going to go A. City Field. Uh, I am going to go
1: D. Target Field. It feels like that you know you got the conversation about the twins and whether or not they move. Target Field feels like a natural place to land this week.
2: Buster, I designed the sleeve patch for Target Field. Um, <laughs> no, I designed the logo for Target Field. You're all wrong because it's actually <gasps> beautiful. PNC Park in Pittsburgh wow. has never been commemorated with a sleeve patch. Right. City Field inaugural season. Same with Citizens Bank Park. Same with Target Field. So we live to fight another day. And Buster, you- you're hubris. Your hubris looms large over this conversation. <laughs> it always does.
1: <laughs> I must say, like of all the teams, because I'm thinking that if you're working like in, in the Pirates ownership in recent years, you're like, oh, my God, what do we celebrate? Oh, my God, what do we have on the table? You'd have to celebrate the ballpark because that's one of the best in the, <laughs> the best in baseball at a time when your team is stunk. So that's that's what my well, logic was, Todd.
2: 25th anniversary coming up in 2026. Uh, just, I'll put this out there. They know who to call. I'll, you know, you you give my website every week. We'll make that happen. Correct the wrong. <laughs> okay. Man, I, <laughs> we had three
1: different answers. We got it all wrong and <laughs> four options. That's pathetic for
2: this week. All right, Todd, great to see you. All right. Thanks so much, Buster.
0: Bleacher tweets.
3: All righty, Buster. Bleacher tweets for a glorious Thursday. Brad Barber at b Brad Barber is up first. Brad writes in: Does it make sense for a contender to trade for Wilson Contreras sooner than the deadline? Because it takes because of the time it takes for a catcher to develop a repertoire with the pitching staff. Yeah, Brad, that's what I've heard from executives around baseball about Contreras.
1: The question is, how quickly will he get comfortable with uh, his new pitching staff? I think he'll get traded, but I kind of wonder if he's going to be dealt to a team where he can be a backup catcher and DH, where, yeah, he'll catch occasionally, but not necessarily be a full-time guy, especially with some of the teams that that might consider adding a catcher like the Houston Astros. You know, they value
3: defense. And you know, they value the relationship their catcher has with pitchers. So I, it is a factor. Blade Bigler at Blade Bigler is up next. Blade writes in, I believe my Rangers were victims of history today when the same three Rangers batters were put down on nine pitches twice by separate Astros pitchers in what I believe is an immaculate inning. Has this happened before? Let's see. Nope. It's
1: a no, it's a first time. Taylor, but you, you heard us talking uh me talking with Alden about that. How, how big of a deal is this for you? Because I, I, I don't. I still. I'm like, shrug of the shoulders a little bit, especially in this era
3: of a million strikeouts. I think it's cool. It's definitely fluky, though. I, I don't. Yeah. I mean, because I, I was thinking about it. We've probably seen a handful of them in the time I've been doing this podcast. So I mean, it's definitely cool, but also fluky. So I wouldn't put a ton of stock into it. Okay. Let's go to Gnome at Gnome89. Gnome writes, and we constantly hear about records that will never be broken or milestones that will never be reached because of how the game is played today. Are there any records or milestones that will be reached now that could not previously be reached for the same reason? Hmm. Uh, How about strikeout rates, right? (laughs) Like we're, We're seeing
1: just crazy strikeout rates, and I do wonder when they put in these rules banning shifts, and you see hitters focus a little bit more on contact because there's a chance they're going to be rewarded for that if all of a sudden the strikeout rates will begin to dip a little bit. And then we'll look back and say, wow, how about this guy who struck out 16 per nine innings? You know what? What a what a crazy, uh, you know, what a crazy era that was. But uh, that, that would be my guess right off the top of my head.
3: Corey Ruckert at Corey R underscore 12 is up next. He writes in "Is Garrett Cole's chain too thin for a guy making over 30 million a year. He included a picture of Garrett Cole's chain. I'm going to guess that while thin, that chain is uh, probably quite expensive. You know what they say, Buster? Uh, Is it like uh, being rich screams, but wealth whispers? And that is the vibe I get from Garrett Cole. Okay. I'm just going to leave it at that. (laughs) Eric Sorensen at Coach Sorensen 9 is up next. The Mariners were supposed to be good this year, I feel like. Uh, M's fans were walking the plank. Can you talk us off the edge, or do you want to push us in? Uh, here's how I would talk you off the plank if I wanted to. Uh, <laughs> I'd say
1: if you see the last couple of years, you've seen the Mariners play better in the second half of the year, and given the fact that they're a young team, you know maybe that'll happen again. But there's no getting around it. If you drop a list of the most disappointing teams in baseball this year, the Mariners would have to
3: be in the top three, no doubt about it. Donnie Irvine is up next. Which manager has helped their team more this year, Bob Melvin or Buck Showalter? Great question, Don. Yeah, I would pick Bob Melvin because I feel yeah. like that the the Padres,
1: while they you know they did make some changes. Uh, you know, the fact that they didn't have Fernando Tatis Jr. from the beginning of this season was a big deal, whereas and Buck's done a tremendous job with the Mets, but a lot of the improvement with that team is because of the free agents and the players they added in the wintertime The trade for Chris Baston. So
3: I would say Bob Melvin. What about you, Taylor? Uh, you know, I – Buck Showalter, man, he walks on water in New York City, baby. I mean, he's really the the culture of the team. I guess you could say for both teams, but the the cultural turnaround we've seen from the last couple of years with the Mets is pretty astounding to me. So I'll go Buck on that one. Okay. Last one for today. Jeremy Termini writes in. Everyone knows about Mike Trout. Is Paul Goldschmidt the most underappreciated hitter in MLB today?
1: No, I say Luis Arise. Oh, yeah. You know? I yeah. mean, we, we probably haven't given enough love on this podcast
3: so far. And so it was cool to see that Ichiro is stepping up and say, you know what? Luis Arise is my favorite left-handed hitter. I was talking to a friend this weekend. He was like, how about that? A guy on the twins. And I said, it's a Luis Arise. That's how you pronounce <laughs> it. I'm, I'm very nice. It. Yeah. All right, everyone. That's it for Bleacher Tweets. Hashtag Bleacher Tweets on Twitter. We'll be back tomorrow. So send them in overnight while you're watching games.
1: That's it for today. My thanks to Alden, Todd, Randy, Sarah, and Taylor. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. Uh, Stay safe. And remember, hate and inequality based on skin color is something we need to fight against every single day.